But I'm saying that the Sabbath practice is not only going to confront us as individuals, it's also going to confront us as communities. What is most important to us and how important is the Sabbath practice? How important is it to lead other people in a way of life that works? What are we going to really prioritize here? What is truly sacred and what is just something that we prefer or something that we've been doing for a long time? You see what I mean? It's going to just bring us into these challenging conversations. And so I really try to show what it is like for a congregation and a pastor to begin to embrace Sabbath rhythms together. What's, what's good? What's hard? What are the challenges? What are the pitfalls? How do we do this together? That was Ruth Haley Barton, and this is the Things Above podcast. Ruth Haley Barton, welcome to the Things Above podcast. Well, thank you so much. Good to be with you. It is good. We have known each other for a while, which is great. We've spoken at conferences together. Um, You've spoken at the Apprentice Gathering, and you're going to be at the Apprentice Gathering this September. I think we're one degree removed all the time. It seems like it. Yeah. (laughs) I I remember we were at at Denver was probably the first time I think we spoke at the same. It was a Renovare conference, if I remember right. Yes. yes, So absolutely. But yeah. And, but your work has been so fantastic. And um, I I, I was even thinking the other day about the spiritual formation movement itself and that, that you would be one of the early leaders. I mean, in that, in that wave of people, I mean, we think about, (laughs) Richard and Dallas and Eugene Peterson and you know there's just been some great voices now and others but you're you're right there as one who's been really contributing to that so thank you for your work. It reminds me of a funny moment and it was at that Renovare conference that you just referenced. I don't know if you remember this moment because I know you were on the stage this stage too. They were honoring Dallas and all the different generations of people. Do you remember this moment? Yes, yeah. They brought all the generations. And and I was in my 50s at the time, and I got called next gen. And I'm like, (laughs) I haven't been called next gen anything for so long. (laughs) I I thought, wow, I, you know, I I didn't think of myself that way yet, but um, I was. (laughs) We'll take it. (laughs) Well, I I mean, I, you know, you think of next gens as being like 23 years old or something like that. And I was like, wow, okay. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I do remember that. That's right. Because yeah. we were, Richard had, I think he gave a talk about the formation movement. and Yeah. And it, then they brought all the, the, these formation people up on yeah. the stage in the generations that, that, and they had a name for each of the generations. And I was in the next gen and I was so used to next gen being like the young adult ministry at the church, you know, right. I'm like, who's that? Yeah. Well, it's you. There you go. I suppose. That's good. Well, I love your latest book, Embracing Rhythms of Work and Rest, Subtitles from Sabbath to Sabbatical and Back Again. So, so the first question I always ask an author on, on the podcast is the same one, pretty basic question, and that is, why did you write this book? Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's always a story, right? As an author, you know that. There's yeah. always a story for every book, so thank you for asking. Um, well, you know, I've written, one of the things I've noticed in my own process as a writer is that there are always themes that keep repeating themselves in my own writing. And Sabbath is one of those. Um, There's a chapter on it in Sacred Rhythms. There's a chapter on it in Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership. So I didn't think I had a whole lot more to say about Sabbath, but I did want to write on sabbatical um, because I had received the gift of sabbatical a couple times and realized how significant it is as a spiritual practice. And for me as a leader, that there's a kind of replenishment that took place on sabbatical that was far beyond 
what could take place in just a day of Sabbath every week. So I've been committed to Sabbath keeping for 20 years, but I wanted to write about sabbatical based on some experiences that I had in sabbatical. And, you know, publishers are very wise about things like, you know, markets and whether or not something's going to actually sell or whatever. And so our mutual publisher said, you know, sure, you know, it'd be great for you to write about sabbatical, but we're not, that's kind of niched. It's kind of a niche topic. Not everybody gets sabbaticals. So would you be willing to combine it, you know, with the topic of Sabbath? And at first I thought, hmm, I'm not sure I have enough more to say on Sabbath, but I really got their point and, and, and I agreed with it, you know, that that a sabbatical book would be very, very niched. And yet, as I thought about it, I thought, wow, you know, sabbatical as a practice actually emerges from the same kind of thought and belief and practice that undergirds Sabbath. And in fact, I think it's very hard to even understand the dynamics of sabbatical if you haven't been practicing Sabbath in your life and understand what it means to cease your work and to rest in God and to trust God with what needs to be done in the world. Um, and so I thought, well, I, I think I'm willing to try that because I actually would like to see the, the topics of sabbat- sabbatical and Sabbath strongly connected. And so that's what I did. I entered in, um, mm-hmm. m- intending to make that connection. And then the thing that caused me to realize that I did have a little bit more I wanted to say about Sabbath was that I had been having an increasing conviction that Sabbath needed to be emphasized more as a communal practice and a personal practice. And a lot of the books that I had read on Sabbath were really beautiful expressions of a personal Sabbath practice. But I was witnessing and seeing um, among younger adults in particular in churches that there's this longing for a way of life that works. And when they can't find the leadership and the guidance that they need within the church for a way of life that works for a Sabbath practice, um, many of them will just say thanks, but no thanks, because the church can tend to just add on a whole lot of Christian busyness to lives that are already unmanageable. And um, I think the younger generation is just saying no to that. And so I thought, wow, somebody needs to write about Sabbath as a communal practice in our current culture. How can the church be a place that actually leads people in the Sabbath practice? How can the church structure its own life together in order to guide and support people in their Sabbath practice? And also, how can pastors and leaders in churches see themselves as Sabbath leaders, see themselves as leaders who are supposed to be guiding others in sane rhythms of work and rest like Moses did? Um, And so, you know, from reading it that I do rely on Moses again quite a bit. Um, and one of the things that strikes me about Moses's experience is that there's a place in the Exodus story where God addresses Moses and says, you yourself are to teach the people about mm. Sabbath. So I wanted to bring a real emphasis on Sabbath leadership and how it is the job of the senior leader in any church or organization to lead out in these Sabbath rhythms that are, you know, they are a Ten Commandment, they're a gift from God. I don't see any evidence that the Sabbath has been reneged upon. And so I think it's a role of leadership. And I want to emphasize leadership um, in community life um, in this book as well. Mm. Yeah, I think that's really one of the strengths of the book. I mean, you're right. There are a lot of books on Sabbath have come out in the last few years, and they're great. But yeah, that that communal emphasis uh, is, is in your book for sure, but isn't in a lot of them. So you did it. You, you accomplished what you, wow. what you hope to do. Well, thank you. So, so I guess we'll start off just really basic. Mm-hmm. So let, let's just assume a, a listener right now has not ever practiced Sabbath keeping. They thought maybe, and you, hint, you hinted this at the book, that, hey, maybe that's an Old Testament thing. Maybe yeah. that's a Jewish thing you know, or something. Um, 
in it, what is the 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 simplest way to understand what Sabbath is? Mm-hmm. Well, I think one of the most foundational things is to understand that Sabbath emerges from God's own nature and God's own character. It 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 actually precedes the Ten Commandments. It precedes. Um, the journey of the Israelites and their journey in God. And so it begins with God. And so when we practice Sabbath, and that is working six days and then ceasing on the seventh, and I want to emphasize the word ceasing, not just resting, that it has to do with ceasing our normal labor, ceasing our work, that um, that's, you know, found in Genesis 1 and 2, and it's part of God's very nature. So when we practice Sabbath, we are actually um, participating in God's nature, which I find to be a thrilling idea, you know, that we actually participate in God's nature by practicing Sabbath. Um, Sabbath is the way that God does God's own creative life and work, um, is by working six days and then ceasing on the seventh. So it's very foundational, very basic in scripture in my mind. Um, and then when God called a people for himself, then he shared this great gift with them. He shared his very nature with them, by first of all introducing it as a beautiful rhythm for their lives it wasn't at first one of the ten commandments it was actually preceded the ten commandments and it was given as pure gift and in fact in the israelite experience it was also given as the sign symbol and the lived reality of their liberation from bondage and i think that's another theme that we lose um, oftentimes is that this is not a practice for those who are privileged and affluent um, this is a practice that was given to an oppressed peoples as sign, symbol, and, re- and lived reality of their liberation from oppression. And that, to me, also is a thrilling idea. So we really must not separate Sabbath keeping from the idea of freedom and being free from that which holds us in bondage. And I think there's many ways we're in bondage in our culture right now that the Sabbath actually addresses. So that would be the second thing, is that it has to do with freedom from oppression, it, from liberation, actually. Um, and then it is a great gift. And I, I do emphasize the gift nature of the Sabbath in the book as well, that it is, I believe, one of God's best gifts to us outside of Christ himself, you know, um, that God wants his people to have a certain quality of life that is characterized by goodness and flourishing and living within the limits of our humanity. And so the Sabbath is our way ahead in living within the gifts and the limitations of our lives as human beings. Our limitations are not a surprise to God. God created us the way that we are, knowing that we would need to have a day of ceasing our work and resting into him um, every week. And so um, it's a great gift from our creator who loves us so much that God wants us to be able to flourish in our lives and to live as the, the creatures that he's created us to be. And so, you know, it's, it's a very simple concept, actually, is working six days and ceasing on the seventh. And, you know, many have pointed out that it's kind of a tithe with your time. Like we think about tithing as being about money. But the Sabbath can also be considered as a tithe of our time, giving a part of our time back to God for God's use in our lives. Um, So those are some of the basic foundational ideas Mm. that I try to build on, articulate and build on in the book. Yeah, and I think that's another strength of 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 your book is that it, you really emphasize that it that it begins with God. It's about the nature of God. It's a gift from God, and then the way you connect it to the the release from bondage and and the the Exodus story I think is just fantastic. But let's go back to the beginning. I didn't know. I don't know that I knew you're a PK like that. Oh, your dad you didn't was, know that. I don't. Oh, I don't know how yes. I didn't know that. But you, uh, you your experience of Sabbath yeah. as a child, you write it, what you didn't write about it like it was really very good. You, you yeah. write uh, all in all, Sabbath was pretty exhausting and slightly punishing. Yes. 
Yes. Um, and that was part that I had not written about before. And it was something I knew that if I was going to write an honest book that I needed yeah. to write about my initial experiences with Sabbath and the fact that um, my dad was a pastor and we were in a f very fundamentalist environment. And so you, you can imagine that we practiced the Sabbath, but did it in a very legalistic way. So um, because we were the pastor's family, we all worked pretty hard on Sundays for one thing. Um, we would always have company or be in someone else's home um, because of the gender stereotypes that were in play at the time. The women worked really hard on serving the meal, cleaning up the meal, all of that. Um, and I was the oldest daughter. And so that was my role too, was to be right there with my mom and helping her to do the hard work of hospitality. And then we know we, we stayed in our Sunday clothes all day. We weren't allowed to do some of the things that, um, you know, maybe some people define bike riding and swimming as work, but I didn't, but we weren't allowed to do those sorts of things. And so, um, yeah, it involved a great deal of work and responsibility and being on and not being able to really enjoy the things that we would have most naturally enjoyed. So, you know, that was my experience. And so when I grew up and left the home and went to college, I was really, really happy to kick the practice of Sabbath keeping to the curb. And I did completely kicked it to the curb until my early 40s when I was experiencing such levels of exhaustion that all of a sudden the idea of Sabbath keeping became a really attractive thing again. And I would, um, you know, read these gorgeous books about Sabbath, even though I didn't think I could do it myself. I couldn't figure out how it would work in my life. But I realized, oh, wow, you know, God knew something. And the way that I'm reading Wayne Mueller and Walter Brueggemann and mm. Tilden Edwards, um, there is a beauty here that I missed out on. There's a gorgeousness to it and a goodness to it that I missed out on, on knowing about and experiencing. Yeah, I really appreciate how candid you are in the book because that's it's helpful, you know, and makes us feel like we're not weird if we struggled with Sabbath as well. But you, you also write, early in your career, you wrote, um, I was too busy, too important, too caught in, uh, in cultural expectations to consider ceasing my work one day a week. So, I mean, I, I think that there are probably a lot of people in ministry who would relate to that. Um, in fact, AJ Swoboda, uh, he was on the podcast a couple of years ago. Mm. He wrote a book called Subvers yes. Subversive Sabbath. Um, <clears throat> but he, he made this really shocking statement um, that he, he was actually preaching a sermon series on Sabbath and he, that he got more pushback from the congregation on that than anything else. But he said this, this statement in his sermon that I thought was fascinating. He said, you know, if I break any of the Ten Commandments, I'll probably get fired. Like I can get fired for breaking these commandments. He said, but the fourth commandment, keeping the Sabbath, that's one commandment that if I break, I'll probably get a raise. Mm -hmm. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. It's like, oh man, yeah. that really hits because, you know, everything in ministry is kind of pushes us to think work, work, work. We've got to establish our worth. But so you had a bike accident that actually mm -hmm. was also a part of that. Tell us about that that and you, you, you're clear, you say, I don't believe God caused the accident, but right. it was an occasion for you to take another step. Yes. Um, yeah, God didn't cause the accident, but I, I believe God that really used it to stop me in my tracks. Um, and so, yeah, it was in my early 40s and I was on staff at a very busy church and, um, you know, thumbing my nose at human limitations. That's for sure. I was feeling my tiredness, but not willing to stop or change anything. And so I was out riding my bike one day and there was um, a parking lot that I was to cross in front of. The sidewalk led me, you know, crossed a, a parking lot. And there was an elderly man in a van who was stopped 
at the sidewalk waiting to, to move forward. And instead of keeping his foot on the brake, he actually accelerated. And so I saw it starting to happen. I saw, you know, but I couldn't stop mm. myself soon enough to avoid the collision. So we did collide and um, I, you know, went down and he drove up on my legs, which were entwined with my bike. Um, and it was a, a moment of utter clarity. Like I did not pass out or anything like that. I just had this moment of clarity where I said, and I remember this so clearly, I hope he gets his car off me soon because this really hurts. That was what <laughs> I was thinking in my head. Um, and so he did throw his car into reverse and, and backed away. Um, and you know, by God's grace, there was a group of, um, off duty paramedics driving by in their van and they saw what happened and picked me up off the sidewalk wow. and, and took me to the emergency room. So, um, you know, as we are wont to do oftentimes as Christian leaders, I didn't, I barely paid attention to the fact that I just had, you know, a significant accident with a bike and a car. The next day I, um, got back up and kind of went back to work, um, and I remember one of my friends said, Ruth, you could take a day off. You did just get run over by a car. <laughs> <laughs> and then another friend said, you know, Ruth, when are you going to learn that when you're on a bike, you can't take on a van? And that was even more penetrating because I realized, yeah, that is kind of the way that I live. You know, I just take on whatever it is and I, and I don't live within human limitations. So um, after a while, I began to really reflect, you know, at first I, you know, there's a euphoria that sets in. I think that's, it's kind of a shock thing. I think where you don't, you don't really fully take in what's happened to you, but I was bruised from the waist down. I eventually discovered that I had a fracture, which was not apparent in the x-rays that they took at the hospital. So, um, you know, the Lord did continue to lead me into some reflection. And mm. I realized that there was this longing within me for, uh, rhythms of rest that I had not lived into before. I was living a 24-7 lifestyle. Um, and when you're on staff at a church, of course, that's easy to do because Sunday is the is the busiest day of the week for people who are on staff at a church. And then Saturdays are often very, very busy days for families. And then you work your work week. And, you know, at that point, I was at a church that never considered Sabbath as a practice for its staff or led us in figuring out how to do that as church staff. Um, so I think that God used the accident at that time to slow me down and I had to, I had to really pay attention. And I had already been reading these beautiful books on Sabbath and Wayne Mueller's book is so lovely. And there was a line in there where he talks about the fact that if we don't take our Sabbaths, then our cancers and our illnesses and our accidents will create Sabbath for us. And I already had that line in my head because I'd already been reading his book, but it came back to me really strongly as I was recovering from that accident. And I realized, oh yes, that's what this is. God is using this accident to create Sabbath for me. And, um, you know, Mm. Then I started to really pay attention and to pay attention to my need, to pay attention to my desire, because the truth is that I was holding deep desires for a way of life that worked better. Um, but I just didn't think it was possible, given the age and stage of my children, given my husband's work where his he's a banker and his bank was open on Sundays, given my own work as a person on staff at a church. I didn't think Sabbath was possible. So I just kept, uh, you know, really submerging my desire for a way of life that was more sane. But with this stop because of the accident and the need for some recovery, I believe God had some space then to come in and to let me have more space for my desire, for my need, and to let some of these beautiful writings come back to me in a way that I could actually reflect on. And um, I experienced it as God meeting me in, in that place and creating space for me to consider this practice. Mm. 
Yeah, and it, it's really evident in the book you I, I, the emphasis that you have over and over on, hey, this is a gift. This mm-hmm. is, I mean, you start out with a Heschel quote about it's God's greatest, most precious presence, you know. I mean, and I, and I love that because you, you're coming at it from the perspective of, hey, this isn't some new obligation that you've got to add on to your life. This is actually liberation. This is freedom. It's joy. It's tranquility. I mean, all of these wonderful things. I'm wondering, Ruth, if you wouldn't mind just like walking us through what a Sabbath looks like for you and your family, like what, how you begin it and what happens in it and how you end it. And yeah, just give us a a glimpse. Well, for one thing, it was different back when I had children at home and, and that's where it started for me. So I have been practicing Sabbath for well over 20 years now. And so when I first began, I was in a place of impossibility. I can't emphasize that enough that even though I had a desire for it, it felt impossible because of family life. And so that was another thing that I wanted to address more strongly in the book is, is how do you practice Sabbath in the different seasons of life? Because we can use our seasons of life as an excuse to say, well, I can't do this now. I have mm. this commitment and that commitment, my family, blah, blah, blah. And, and I wanted to really go after that um, and say, no, the Sabbath is for all seasons. It's just that you might have to be creative and, and, uh, really work on it in a way that works for you and your family and your your ministry season. So at that stage, our kids were mostly teenagers. We had two teenagers and one a little bit younger than that. And so, you know, one of the sadnesses I have sometimes is that I didn't um, start to institute Sabbath sooner because once the kids were teenagers and in their own rhythms of life and their own priorities, I wasn't going to just foist it on them. Um, right. I felt like they were at a place where they needed to have agency and I didn't ever want to ruin the gift of Sabbath for them by forcing it on them. So I did not, we made the choice not to foist it on them. So in the beginning I practiced myself. And so I said to the family, you know, I'm not, I'm not insisting that you all do this with me, but I'm going to be practicing Sabbath. This is what Sabbath is. It's ceasing our work. And so there are certain things I won't be doing. And it was an adjustment, but I actually look back and I'm really surprised at how gracious they were because um, sometimes that involved traveling sports teams that played on Sundays. And I was really clear that for me as an introvert and for me that someone as someone who had really busy work weeks, that um, putting chairs and coolers and traveling and, you know, having to visit all day with people that I didn't know all that well. Um, man, that was not restful. I mean, that really took a bite out of any sort of real rest. And so that was one of the harder decisions. Um, most of the, most of the sports at that time were played on Saturdays, but one of my daughters played on a traveling team that played on Sundays. And that put us in a place of saying to her, you know, that's a choice you can make if you want to play soccer on Sundays, but we won't be going. So if you can get a ride, feel free. And, you know, it it went better than we thought, (laughs) making those kinds of determinations. Um, When we were in wedding seasons, like shopping was one of the things that sometimes we try to catch up on errands and shopping. And I I would say I don't shop. I don't go into stores on Sundays because I believe that consumerism is a part of what needs to rest on the Sabbath. Um, And so, you know, that was an adjustment as well, because sometimes for them, Sunday would be the best time to go shopping for a wedding dress or... um, getting caught up on school shopping or whatever, but those were things I just didn't do. And, 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 you know, I was able to be clear about that and I was able to experience their grace and their willingness to respect what I was trying to do. Eventually my husband saw the attractiveness of it and joined me in it. Um, and you know, the, my kids practiced in different ways. Like one of the things that I did 
at that time was to make sure that the meal that we had on on the Sabbath evening was really beautiful and wonderful and special. Um, and I do enjoy cooking when I'm not under pressure. And so for me, preparing a nourishing soup or having, you know, putting some steaks on the grill or whatever, um, making the meal special, we found that the kids were really drawn to that, it became a meal that they didn't want to miss. And mm. they were also welcome to invite others if they wanted. So um, those were some ways in which we drew them. And eventually, by just watching, they started to have a deeply held value within them that they too needed a day to, to cease from whatever their work was, whether that was the work of being a student and studying, whether it was the work of being a competitive athlete, that they began to have inklings that, yeah, you know, I need a rest too. And so they began to incorporate sometimes of resting in ways that worked for them um, rather than it being foisted upon them. So I'm, I'm just really grateful that the Lord gave me enough, me and my husband enough wisdom to not force it. Cause I don't, I don't think it should be forced. I think if you're going to do it as a family, it'd be better if it starts when their kids are younger and they just begin to get used to it. Because, um, you know, I know families now who started with when their kids were younger and there is a, a great delight in it now. And so then when the kids get older, they'll have to make some other choices, but there's a feeling of, Oh, this was one of the best things about my childhood was these beautiful days that were full of rest and delight where people were in a better mood people were more available to each other, that sort of thing. So I'm saying all that because I address that strongly in the book. Um, in fact, my own daughter, Charity, has a section in the book where she writes about and, and actually juxtaposes her experiences with us in our family with what she's trying to do in her family right now with three young children. And um, it's just a really precious part of the book where she processes what it was like to go through that with, with us, but also then now to have valued the Sabbath because of what she witnessed and how she's been attempting to put it into practice earlier than I was able to put it into practice. So on our own podcast, the Strengthening and Soul of Your Leadership podcast, I actually had her and her husband on for one of the episodes mm -hmm. and and it was tearful and tender because and it always is for she and I to talk about the Sabbath it's always tender because it takes us down to some of the deepest experiences that we had in our home and some of the deepest passions that she has now for her own family it's beautiful to see that happen when you don't force it um so you know back then um it was me making the choices that I needed to make about what was restful and what was not and um that was one season. And now, of course, when it's just my husband and I, we're, we, you know, we start with a meal on Saturday night um, and we do uh, unplug. Uh, I unplug. I turn my phone off. I literally turn my phone off. Um, try to be in connection with family or friends or whoever we might be getting with. Um, if there are any plans that need to be made, I try really hard to get those plans made and confirmed and set so I don't have to be checking my phone for anything about those kinds of things. I have a whole chapter in the book on technology because I do believe that technology is also part of what we need to rest from. Um, yeah, it's a great chapter. Really yeah, important. Yeah. And we can talk more about that if you want to go there. Um, and then, so we start our resting the night before, you know, for the, for the Israelites, they started on Friday night. Um, I think Sunday is a really great day for Christians to practice their Sabbath starting Saturday night because that's the day that we celebrate the resurrection. Sunday is a special day for Christians for worship. And so to start on the night before. Um, and then worship can be a part of it either on the Saturday night. Um, I actually, if, if I have a preference, I, I really appreciate being able to start with worship on the, the night before to start Sabbath with worship. 
and then um, then the next day, you know, you can really be in that resting mode and you don't have to get up and get dressed and put your face on and get your kids rallied. And if you're an introvert, again, I am an introvert living a very uh, extroverted life. So what it takes for this introvert to really rest from her life at the level of relationship and being on in any way is very significant for me. It's a significant learning for me that even the beauty of, of community is still something that takes something from me because, you know, I am an introvert. And so I've um, given a lot of thought to the rhythm of worship within your Sabbath practice. So to either start with worship on the Saturday night um, and so that you don't have to be up and about the next morning, or if you, if you were to do your Sabbath from, you know, Sunday morning, maybe to Monday morning, then you could start with your Sunday worship. And then the rest of the day, you get back into your comfy clothes and do fun things and rest and relax the rest of the day. So, um, and, and for me, the other part of my personality that's significant as I think about Sabbath is the fact that I'm a P on the Myers-Briggs. So, my life is very structured. My life and my work is extremely structured with meetings on the hour and um, lots of demands on my life. And so for, for that Sabbath day to be a day when it can unfold versus a day that has a lot of structure to it, that is the most deeply replenishing thing that can happen for me, um, mm. as well as um, either spontaneous or planned times with loved ones or whatever. Um, but done in as relaxed a way as possible where the work of it's not put on any one person. So sometimes that's hard to achieve. And I think, you know, uh, husbands and wives and families need to talk about that too. What are the gender role expectations that we're living in our lives? Is it expected that the wife does all the work to get ready for Sabbath? Who's doing the most work <laughs> to make sure that <laughs> Sabbath is accomplished for the family? See, there's lots of, there's lots of underlying issues that surface when you think about this practice, right? Yeah. For sure. Well, now I know, Ruth, you work with, you train a lot of pastors, people mm -hmm. in ministry. Yeah. Uh, Sunday for, and I'm in that same boat. I'm, I'm yeah. teaching pastor at my church. I lead worship mm -hmm. every Sunday. So yeah. um, it is, that's, it's kind of a work day for, um, what, what's your counsel there? Yeah. Thank you. I'm, I so appreciate the question because when we teach about Sabbath and our transforming community experience, this is the most energized conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, because I think it, it does two things at, at once. It ignites the, this desire to have a way of life that works and we get in touch with our exhaustion and, we, and even our desperation maybe. But then on the other hand, there's this co complexity of the fact that for pastors and other ministry leaders, Sundays can be the most busy day of the week. So this is where I really do think that we have to do this in community and that in community, we consider what can we do in the life of our community to ensure that everyone, and particularly the staff, gets their Sabbath, even though Sundays are such a, a big work day for them. And I do put leading worship and preaching and all of that in the category of work for pastors. So what I suggest, and I'll just get right to my best suggestion, um, is that I, I know some I know some people do it in such a way that each staff member decides which day is going to be their Sabbath day for them in the week. I don't think that works very well because the rest of the staff then doesn't have your presence. They're filling up your inbox and you know it. Um, and there's, you know, days when people are working, but they can't reach each other and it's just not good. Um, I mean, it can be good, but I don't think it's the best. What I would like to see is that all staff take the same Sabbath with um, a receptionist or a pastor on call who takes any pastoral need calls and, and 
is able to handle them. And so we can share that responsibility. So one week, somebody's going to be the pastor on call. Another week, not somebody else is going to be the pastor on call. And that elders and deacons can participate in this. High-level volunteers can participate in carrying the pastoral load um, of emergencies and things like that. But that um, ideally, um, and this is where it might mess with the life of your community, that after the morning worship is done, or maybe it's a, a church that has a service or two on Saturday and maybe one on Sunday, but that after the church services are done at 12 or 1 on Sunday, that then the Sabbath begins for everyone. And everyone goes home, gets in their comfy clothes, eats good food, takes naps, and begins their Sabbath. And that the staff would take their Sabbath from, you know, 1 o'clock, 12 or 1, on Sunday till 12 or one, or maybe even the evening on Monday. Mm -hmm. Um, and that way everybody's resting uh, together. And then you come back together on Tuesday in a rested way and you process what happened on the weekend. And, um, you know, you do all the debriefing meetings that we all know we have and, um, come back to it rested. And that by doing that, that we're actually setting an example for the congregation, for people who aren't involved in the ministry, but just come to the worship, their worship can start on Saturday night or Sunday and they can stay in their Sabbath mode by coming and worshiping. And that's a part of their Sabbath. Whereas for people who are actually pulling off the worship services, that's part of our work. And so our Sabbath starts at a slightly different time. And, um, but, but but we're leading out. We're leading out in the congregation that this is this is what we do here. We practice mm. the Sabbath here, and this is how we do it. And your staff, your pastors, are going to rest into their Sabbath practice after the end of church in the morning, all the way through, you know, the next day. Mm. And you know, we have provision for the needs that you might have. But you know, we're all practicing Sabbath together now. I realize that that's really challenging, and I write about this honestly in the book. Um, I write about the fact that many communities have a lot of sacred cows that they have for Sundays, a lot of things they try to do on Sundays. And I've been a part of churches like this, where everything that happens in the church practically happens on Sundays, small group meetings, choir practices, um, congregational meetings, small groups, all sorts of things. And that it makes it, then the church is making it impossible for individuals to practice Sabbath. And I know why they do it. I mean, I've been around this block many, many times. I know why they do it. It's a busy culture. They think, well, if we don't get them now while they're here on Sundays, right. we'll never get them back. I know why we do these things. But I'm saying that the Sabbath practice is not only going to confront us as individuals, it's also going to confront us as communities. What is most important to us and how important is the Sabbath practice? How important is it to lead other people in a way of life that works? Um, what are we going to really prioritize here? what is truly sacred and what is just something that we prefer or something that we've been doing for a long time. You see what I mean? It's going to just bring us into these challenging conversations. And so, uh, especially in chapter nine of the book, I, I really try to show what it is like for a congregation and a pastor to begin to embrace Sabbath rhythms together. What's, what's good, what's hard, what are the challenges, what are the pitfalls? How do we do this together? Yeah. Yeah, and I I really appreciate that because th th they are challenging, and and you say in the book, you have to make some courageous decisions about yeah. what you're going to do and not do, and it, there's there's work involved in planning this rest, uh, ironically. Yeah. Um, but you, you mentioned we mentioned earlier the 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 chapter on technology, and boy, I just I I think it's huge, and I I think we have to really address this issue. Um, in for life in general, but certainly in, in spiritual formation. I mean, I mm -hmm. think these screens and phones are impacting us in dramatic ways. But why did you choose to have a whole chapter on that yeah. uh, and what a tech sh a Shabbat looks like? Yeah. 
Well, I had touched on technology um, in Sacred Rhythms. I think this is the only place where I had touched on technology, and that book was written a while ago. And so this was an opportunity for me to take it on um, even more fully. And I needed to, and I wanted to, because when people are with me in Transforming Community and in other ways, they know that I am extremely passionate about Christians being very intentional about the role of technology in their life. So in our retreats, you know, they're tech free and we actually um, ask people to unplug as part of our covenant that when you come to be with us on retreat, that you're, you're being invited to unplug and that that's part of our covenant with each other as we meet. Um, and it's gotten more and more challenging. I joke with people that I've been doing this for so long that when I first began to lead retreats, there were no cell phones. I mean, I'm so embarrassed that I've been, <laughs> you know, that I'm that old. I mean, some people who are listening can't imagine that world, but I, that was my world. There were hey, no cell that's phones. That's right. Right. <laughs> so, so we weren't Landlines. dealing with this issue back yeah. then. Um, and so now as, as you know, the availability of technology has unfolded, now I've had to really deal with it more strongly than I did back then. And so then I started to introduce a ritual to, you know, help people put their phones in a Sabbath box or something like that, or in a basket and inviting them to let us babysit their phones and all of that. And then the computers became so slim and trim that now people are bringing their computers as well. And so this was a chance to address how significant I think technology is impacting us to your point. Um, and I, I think one of the things that I've had to realize in my own life is that my connectivity, my connectedness through cell phones and computers um, is part of my exhaustion. It's a source. Mm -hmm. of my exhaustion. It gets me riled up. It gets me thinking along the lines that someone else is encouraging versus what I really want to be thinking about right now. It gets my competitive juices going. It, um, it makes me want to work harder and try harder and keep up with everybody. It, it, I think it exhausts us at the level of seeking all the likes and hearts and why didn't anybody respond to this, you know, to this social media post that I put out there. It's, it's, it is exhausting in an, in, in a deep internal place. It's exhausting to the psyche. And so in this book, I'm trying to identify technology as a place in which we are in bondage to other people's priorities for us, to what the culture is trying to serve up, to what uh, the people who manage technology want for us. We know now that um, technology and social media, well, social media in particular, they're not, it's not neutral. The people who are developing the, these different ways of being connected are doing it with their own marketing and their own desire to control our minds in, in their own intentions. Their, their intentions are not p always pure. If, can, do you agree with me when I say that? I mean, that's a Absolutely. strong statement. Yeah, no, it's a big statement, but it's, yeah, I mean, we know it now. I mean, it, and some, some uh, of these companies have even come out and said, we know, we know what we're doing <laughs> and we know what's happening to people. Yeah. And they're the ones who are saying, we're not going to allow our children on there. Like the founders of Facebook, <laughs> they, they're not going to allow their children on it because they know what the intent behind it really is. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. So yeah. Um, this was an important kind of going out there on a topic that, that matters a lot to me and that it, I think it matters to our spirituality. I think it is robbing us right now of opportunities for solitude and silence. I think it's robbing us of, of opportunities to hear the still small voice of God. In fact, one of the things that I tease our retreatants about is that when you're trying to practice solitude and silence and you have your phone in the room and the phone rings, you answer it. Who is it? It's Satan. You know, I, you know, it's whoever, you know, whoever the human is on the other, I believe it's the evil one coming in and want to interrupt us right at that moment when God and I are starting to commune. Mm -hmm. Right at that moment where God is starting to say something important, the phone rings. 
or the text notification goes off and you you're now outside the moment you're not you're not present with god like you were now you're dealing with somebody else and maybe the moment even passes you can't get it back um yeah, so I, you know i'm i feel very strongly about the role of technology as it has to do with our ability to be present to god in solitude and silence and 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 i love how you write about and being present to each other uh, yeah. I, I love this you write or um, studies of, of conversation both in laboratory and in natural settings show that when two people are talking, the mere presence of a phone on the table between them or yeah. in the periphery of their vision changes both what they talk about and the de- degree of connection they feel. Uh, and then you write, people uh, keep the conversation on topics where they won't mind being interrupted. They don't feel as invested in each other. Even a silent phone disconnects us. What a great, yeah, I, that is so true. Just And I, after I read that, I went, that's right. If I'm talking with someone and their phone or my phone is out, um, we're not connected. I thought yeah. that's interesting. Even a silent phone disconnects us. Yeah. And I have found that on the Sabbath that um, even seeing the phone is is a, a temptation to me. So not only do I turn it off, but I put it in a drawer because the presence of the phone reminds me of the fact that I'm not on it. Like I could be doing something, you know, really wonderful, like, um, you know, walking through the kitchen to get a glass of water. And I see my phone there and I'm like, I wonder what's going on out there that I'm missing. Mm -hmm. Even seeing it on the Sabbath actually becomes a distraction. So, um, I'm, I have realized that I'm still learning about the Sabbath. I think I want to say that right here is that I'm still learning about the Sabbath. I'm still learning about how much it matters. I'm still learning about how to do it in a, in the most fruitful way. I'm still learning about the levels and the layers of gifting that come to us through the Sabbath. My husband and I are still working on our differences in terms of how we handle technology and other kinds of things that we might have differing opinions about what's restful on the Sabbath. Like we're still actively working on this practice. And I think we probably will because the culture is changing. What's available is changing. Um, and so this is a relatively new learning for me, that it's not just turning the phone off, it's actually putting it away. And Tiffany Schlane, whom I rely on quite a bit in that chapter on technology, I did an interview with her in our podcast, and she talked about in no uncertain terms, she goes, I don't even want to touch the thing, you know? Mm. She, and she's a filmmaker, like she's on technology all, you know, the rest of her life, Her whole the whole rest of her life happens through her technologies. Um, and she is saying, for the Sabbath, she turns it off and she goes, I don't even, cause we were talking about something like getting directions. If you're going someplace where you don't know how to get there, um, or things like that, you know, do you turn your phone on to get the, your Google map or whatever? Mm-hmm. And, and she was really clear. She goes, I don't even want to touch the thing. <laughs> <laughs> and she, and, and she's really, um, got a great balance cause she says it's not because it's bad. It's just because it's not what we're doing today. You yeah. know, I, I rely on it and I appreciate it for the other six days of the week. But on the Sabbath, we're doing something else, and the phone doesn't fit with what we're doing then. And I, so I keep remembering her voice. I don't even want to touch the thing, and I'm like, oh, good, I'm not alone with needing to put this thing in the drawer, you know, in yeah. order to really settle into this resting place. Yeah, no, I I, I read that book actually, Tiffany Schlein's Twenty Four Six, and if I remember, uh, correct me, Ruth, but I, she's not doing it from a religious perspective, right? No, I mean, she's not. No, she's a secular Jew, so mm-hmm. she does have the Sabbath in her heritage. And it's her husband who's a, who is a practicing Jew who brought that into their relationship when they dated and got married. It, in fact, it was one of the things that attracted her to him was that they were going to get together for a date and needed to make arrangements. And, and he was very clear with her from the first encounter that he wouldn't be on his phone 
on the Sabbath. So they would need to make their plans ahead of time. And so, yes, yeah, she's a secular Jew. And so she doesn't do it at all from a religious standpoint, but it's, it's, she's actually, um, doing it from the standpoint of the pure goodness of it for mm-hmm. her and for yeah. her family. Yeah. Actually, I listened to that audio book with my daughter, who my daughter, mm-hmm. who's, you know, um, Gen Z, you know, she's young. Yeah. She's never not had screens in her life. Mm-hmm. And, um, and my daughter was really drawn into the book. She, yeah, she, she gets it, um, for sure. But, yeah. um, it's, it's a fantastic book. And I think you're right to say that, um, the younger generation is drawn, even as they wrestle with the impossibility of it, the younger generation is drawn mm-hmm. because they're suffering. I think. Right. I think I, and they I, know I they're suffering. They, they know that mental health suffers. They know that their relationship with God suffers. They know that they're distracted. They know that they're exhausted from always being on. And so they are drawn, even, even if at this moment they don't know quite how to figure it out, they're drawn. Yeah. If they can have a winsome, if they get a winsome presentation. Yeah, for sure. Not an ought and should and the legalism mm-hmm. that I described earlier. Yeah. Well, and, and again, just to emphasize, I mean, what I think what I love the most about your book, which again, the title is Embracing Rhythms of Work and Rest from Sabbath to Sabbatical and Back Again. I mean, what's is that you're, you come from the perspective of your soul longs for this. God longs for this. It's the way of, of God. It's who God is. I mean, you, you keep coming at that because quite often when we talk about something as a spiritual discipline, you know, the word discipline has this negative connotation, but um, you, you do a great job of, of uh, making someone want to do it. You know, it's like, as I, as I read your book, it, it increased my desire for Sabbath. It, it made me um, long for it in a, in a, in a deeper way. And I picked up some things. Oh, and by the way, I got the little Sabbath box that, mm-hmm. from IVP in the mail. So yeah. I, I have the little gray box. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I got a nice candle and yes, yes, you so, did. yes I got, I got the whole, <laughs> I have it in my home. So I put my phone in there. There you go. Yeah. So um, yeah. see, that's, see, you're hiding your phone too. That's, yeah. that is excellent. Well, that's a high compliment that it, that it, it stirred your desire. Cause that's, you know, you, you know, there's a question that you had in our list of questions here. What is your hope? And I think that would be the deepest one is that it would stir desire, real mm-hmm. desire, because I think the best practice comes out of being in touch with human longing and desire. And in fact, um, I'm sure that you also use these two words interchangeably, but I use the words discipline and practice somewhat interchangeably. Mm -hmm. But in this case, I like to use the word practice because the truth is I need practice. You know, like this is not an easy discipline. It doesn't come naturally to any of us anymore. And and I don't do it perfectly on every day. I need to keep practicing the Sabbath and get better at it um, and continue to open up to the gift that it is. And so the word practice resonates deeply with me around this particular practice because um, I need to, I'm, I'm still trying stuff. I'm still learning. I'm still unveiling the goodness and the layers of goodness that exist within this practice. So thanks for saying that it stirred you. Mm, uh, it stirred mm-hmm. you at the level of your desire. Cause that's what I would hope for. Yeah. Yeah. And I love you. You say in the book, desire is the language of the soul. Mm-hmm. And, and we have these longings that I believe are factory loaded. Like we come, we come built with these and they get misplaced and disordered, but those desires uh, are, are what can lead us. And yeah. your book stirs that, which is so great. Well, Ruth, thank you for you. Thank you for the work you do. It's so great to, to have you as a, uh, in this work together. I, I consider us colleagues in, 
in the formation world. Yes, and, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Thanks yeah. for having me and for your work too. And for, um, you know, just being, uh, you know, just a, a colleague and a friend in, in these things that we both agree are so important. So crucial. Yeah. Hey, and just want, just to let you know, uh, we have sold out the, the apprentice gathering, the, the conference that I'll, you'll be in here wow. in September. I know we sold out you know, way in advance. It's the first time we've ever done that. So, wow! Congratulations. Um, That's beautiful. yeah, yeah. It's gonna so that room will be packed when you get on stage. So, All right. So, All right. Well, I'm looking forward to it. People. I know I'll be with kindred spirits. Indeed, indeed. All right. Blessings to you. All right. Thanks, Jim. I hope you enjoyed our things above conversation with Ruth Haley Barton. She is incredible, and her books are great, especially the new book, Embracing Rhythms of Work and Rest. I hope you go out and get it. Hey folks, I want to let you know about a recent development here at Friends University where I teach. We have an undergraduate degree program in Christian spiritual formation, a Bachelor of Arts degree, that's both a first and a second major. Now, I teach in this program, as well as some other amazing professors, and I am pleased to announce that Friends University is offering an amazing scholarship of up to $18,000 per year to students interested in studying Christian formation as a part of their college experience. In addition to this amazing scholarship, there'll be hands-on learning with ministry leaders, working with me and others, and great opportunities for internships. Again, this is for both a first major, those who plan on going into ministry, as well as those seeking it as a second major, meaning those who are going to become accountants or therapists or graphic designers or teachers or engineers, any number of other vocations, but they also want to grow in their spiritual lives while in college and get a pretty big scholarship to help pay for college. So if you know someone who would benefit from a degree like this, check out our website, ApprenticeInstitute.org, and click on the Friends University tab. Again, ApprenticeInstitute.org, and click on the Friends University tab. I hope you join me next time. Until then, you can find me on Twitter and Facebook at James Brian Smith. And you can learn more about this podcast. And if you'd like to donate to the Things Above podcast, you can do so on our website, ApprenticeInstitute.org. Click the Donate Now button at the top of the page. It's really easy, and it would mean a lot to me. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend, and you can also subscribe, which means you're going to get them automatically each week. My hope, as always, is that one day if you're asked, what's on your mind? Your answer will be, things above.